This Prop Talk recording is a news and opinion product that is the property of Original Prop Blog LLC, all rights reserved. Original Prop Blog LLC is not responsible for any statements or opinions expressed by the guests of this program. Live on tape from the OPB studios in Northern California, it's Prop Talk. Brought to you by the Original Prop Blog, we're making analog connections across the world. Each podcast features one-on-one chats with special guests to discuss the hobby of collecting original movie props and costumes. The Original Prop Blog is the original source of news, information, and opinion about authentic popular culture artifacts and memorabilia from film and television. Now, let's join our host, Jason DeBorg. So, welcome to Prop Talk. And I'm going to get right to our interview. Today I've got Brianna Livy with The Golden Closet, who's uh, taking the time to talk to me and uh, participate in this podcast. So, welcome. <laughs> welcome, collectors. <laughs> <laughs> so, this is actually, you know, we're kind of laughing because this is the first time we've ever talked on the phone. Um, we've exchanged some emails over the years, but somehow we just never... Um, really got connected on the phone. So I'm actually looking forward to this and, and learning um, a lot more about you. And I know you have a really interesting history and um, your company is one of the most respected sources of uh, original movie costumes and memorabilia in the hobby. So this is um, exciting for me. And I know you're one of the pioneers in the hobby. So why don't you start by telling us a little bit about um, the golden closet and then we'll kind of... Uh, go back into your history after that. So what does the Golden Closet do? Well, we buy, sell, and consign um, motion picture, television, and uh, music, entertainment-related props and wardrobe. That was a big mouthful of words, wasn't it? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but we're, we, we really are not unique to one um, area of entertainment memorabilia. We deal with it all. Um, and it does. It has a lot to do with my history um, and my family's history within the costume end of the motion picture industry. So, um, yeah, I guess. I mean, what do you want to know about? Do you want to know how it started, or yeah, why don't why don't we closet? Yeah, why don't we go back to? Uh, I know it started from reading your website in 1945 with your grandfather. So, do you want to maybe start from there and maybe work forwards and and how? Uh, your family evolved in the entertainment business and uh, costume rentals and things like that. Absolutely. Well, my grandfather started in the in the mid '40s as a studio guard at Lionsgate Studios, and um, then he slowly worked his way up into the costume department. Um, they were short a man, I guess, and I don't really <laughs> remember what feature it was. They needed some more hands, so they called down to the to the guard booth and uh, asked my grandfather to uh, come help out. And something you have to know about my grandfather is that he only had one hand. Oh, wow. He shot it off in a hunting accident when he was 14. So, I mean, especially back in those days, you were you were seen as a handicapped person. I mean, you were, right. but, you know, someone that wasn't hired onto movie sets, that's for sure, much less costuming. I mean, you need both hands <laughs> to tie right. ties and <laughs> schlep clothes. And so... Um, the man gave him an opportunity. It was it was actually pretty interesting because uh, when he went there, he called back down to the 
to the guard post and said, you know, I thought I, I thought I asked you to send me a man, not a half a man. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And um, less than two years later, my grandfather was that man's boss. Wow. Yeah. Very so, and they just kind of took off from there. He worked with, uh, he was Brando's uh, main dresser for a number of his films. He was really cr- close with uh, Mr. Brando and he worked with Humphrey Bogart and Elvis Presley. And um, I mean, he had almost 40 years in the business. And uh, I guess it was in the 1970s, 40 years in the business when he retired. But the ni- early 1970s, the, the studio started to um, be sold off to big corporate conglomerates and the new accounts uh, came in and said, you know, why are we keeping all these, you know, warehouses full of all this wardrobe and props and set dressing? And so they started selling off whole departments full mm. of clothing. And my grandfather realized that this was an opportunity to start an independent motion picture costume warehouse. And uh, that's when Costume Rentals Corporation was born. And my, my dad um, jumped in and he helped build that company and then he left um, about 15 years ago and started Eastern Costume Company. And um, my uncle was involved at one time and uh, with Costume Rails Corporation, and he is now the vice president of Western Costume Company. And um, Lester Bayless, who started American Costume Company, actually started that with my grandfather before CRC. I guess I kind of jumped ahead. Yeah, it was Lester Bayless, who was John Wayne's customer for hmm. 25, 30 years, something like that. And uh, my grandfather started American Costume, United American Costume Company with Luster, and then they were too much alike. They butt heads, so they <laughs> split ways. And that's when my dad and, and um, he started Costume Rentals Corporation. So I've, you know, I've, I was born and raised jumping from racks and um, military, big piles of military clothing, and you know, mothballs or favorite scent of mine, <laughs> to say the least. So, so do you get the mothball scent when you get your car washed? <laughs> oh, my God, no, if they did. It's, it's definitely a homey feeling. Yeah. The dirt from all these warehouses, and uh, it sounds so glamorous, but it really isn't. It's a dirty job, and it's a hard job. <laughs> yeah. Well, I know from when I've, you know, I, I haven't collected a lot of costumes, but that's actually what I started out with was mostly costumes. And there's definitely some interesting aromas that come out when you unzip those bags and oh, kind of try to figure out what that scent is. It's dirt. Yeah. It's, you know, these, these warehouses, I mean, ours is 60,000 square feet and, um, Westerns is over a hundred. Um, and it's just, I mean, you can put covers on this stuff and you can keep the floors, but it's just, it's a fact. I mean, you just, it's just like going, pulling something out of your closet you haven't worn in five years, just being like, whoa, gotta wash that. You right. know, imagine thousands and thousands and thousands of costumes just sitting there. And especially a lot of these costumes have been around since the turn of the century, 20s, 30s, 40s. So, I mean, you know, and even before that, and then they've been rented on production after production and sweat and I mean, yeah. go into it. But yeah. that's, that's, that smell. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so that's, you know, and that's how I got started. It was in the early nineties. Planet Hollywood. I was, uh, I was actually going to be a large animal vet and it decided I didn't want to go down that road. Too wow. many years of college and <laughs> came to work for my pops here at Eastern Costume and, um, I just, I didn't want to be daddy's little girl. And, yeah. uh, it was interesting because Planet Hollywood had 
really started blowing up. They were, you know, they had their place in Florida and um, here in Universal Studios. Uh, and they started expanding. Well, they really needed a lot of stuff. So they came into our warehouse, and I think it was the Crow was my first big sale, the Crow mm-hmm. or Ind- and Independence Day. Um, and I sold them all this stuff. And I, I realized at that point that there was a market. I started looking into the auction companies, and there were a few bits and pieces here at auctions. It was really um, scripts and autographs that right. was more entertainment-related at that time. Um, and I started seeing the values on some of these things. And I said, well, I have warehouses full of this <laughs> stuff. I mean, that's how we filled a lot of the, you know, our warehouses, Eastern Costume, Costume Rentals Corporation, American Costume, or even Western. Western was making this stuff since 1930-whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but we bought all the stuff from the studios when they were just purging. I mean, truckloads and truckloads. So, I mean, we had stuff from Warner Brothers, Universal, 20th Century Fox. I mean, I virtually would just walk down the aisle and go through and look in pockets for labels hmm. and then go through and research. And that's why I guess I I have so many vintage pieces, and that's why I'm known for the authentication and documentation on some vintage pieces of motion picture history. Um. But that's pretty much how I got started. And then, you know, well, we would have the other part of it is, too, is that as they were purging all of this, you know, props and wardrobe, getting rid of these departments, they were making movies. And because they were getting rid of stuff, they didn't want to absorb that those wardrobe and props and set dressings back into their inventory. So they'd say, well, you're a costume house here. You want to buy it mm-hmm. or you want to trade it for loss and damage on the show. So I would end up buying whole movie sets. Um and then turning around and selling them everything from the cars, the set walls, to props, wardrobe, you name it. Um, and, so uh, do you think, um, you had mentioned Planet Hollywood, do you think that that kind of initiated sort of exposing, you know, this world to people where they think, oh, you know, is that really something I can pursue and collect and things like that? I mean, do you think that kind of spread awareness to people that might not have otherwise thought, oh, you can actually own this stuff? Absolutely. Absolutely it did. Um, and they were also the driving force of the auction companies. I mean, it was, it was Butterfields and Butterfields, Sotheby's, Christie's, and, you know, a few other little minor auction houses that were dealing, like I said, in the scripts and, manus- you know, uh, contracts and signed autographs. Um, but then, you know, Planet Holly was just, they were just bidding things at, so far out of the park, it was people were just, their eyes were getting big. So then, you know, more and more, well, I've got this in my closet or, and that's how the auction companies started developing their departments. I mean, I worked with um, Butterfields and Butterfields a, a little bit, but mostly with, with profiles and history because I, I really appreciated the attention that they gave to the memorabilia and the detail <clears throat> I mean, even so far back in the day, it was 16 years ago I started working with them. I think I was the main consigner of their third auction or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah, Planet Hollywood was was definitely the driving force, I feel. And then the Internet, eBay. Right. I think the birth of the Internet and eBay um, just exploded it. Um, yeah, because I think it's still a very kind of niche hobby. But it seems like relationships are built and everything kind of on the various discussion forums and, you know, people 
um, getting in touch, just doing transactions with each other and things like that. And then, of course, there's, you know, the Prop Store of London and Screen Use, which are, you know, big um, resale companies. Um, I know you differ because you, you're actually kind of this, you know, I mean, you're getting more things directly from the sources rather than um, things that have been traded around a lot more. To be honest, I just don't, I'm not into the trading thing. Right. Um, I've done it a couple of times and every time I've done it, I've been burned. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, literally even someone like myself, <clears throat> excuse me, that's been in the industry for, I mean, what is this industry now? Um, for 16 years and I've been burned for a lot of money at times. And I just, I do, I go directly to the source. Um, I still buy whole movies. Mm-hmm. Um, I just sell them to other prop companies. Right. And then they resell them. I do a lot of business with Prop Store of London. Love those boys. Um, I remember meeting Stephen Lane. He flew over here. I was doing a, um, I set up an exhibition for Darren Julian when he was with Sotheby's and I think his auction, it was Entertainment Rarities. And, uh, Stephen came over and I, and I had met him at that time and he was, he was just a collector and kind of just doing it on the side. He hadn't actually started his company, but, um, yeah, I like that guy. He's he's pretty awesome. Him yeah. and Brandon they yeah. cracked me up. Um, but yeah, and uh, Desi Desi was a client of mine for years from screen from screen used, and then you know he he got a couple of people together, and they seem to be doing really well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think it's awesome. I think that it, <clears throat> between I mean those guys are the I think at the forefront of prop collecting that really um, forged it into. A widely known, it's almost like an art form now. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's being noticed. It's being noticed by CNN. Yeah. And I found it seems like the mainstream media, what gets their attention are the, the big auctions and, you know, what they're always interested in what things sell for. Like, what's the most expensive thing? You know, that's kind of their angle. And I think that's at least one of the good, um, benefits of, you know, like this summer, there's just a ton of auctions. You know, Profiles has their big auction and then the Lost auction. And Julian's has that huge auction and Vegas coming. And, you know, PropWorks is doing different things. So it seems like the more that there's things going on, you know, and, and um, especially in this economic environment where everything's kind of doom and gloom, it's sort of interesting that this hobby kind of goes on and... uh people are spending lots of money on, you know, things that aren't essentials, obviously. So, Well, I, I think that, I think people are a scared to put their money in the stock market. Mm-hmm. I mean, and obviously you understand the real estate market yeah. um, is, is very volatile. Um, and from what, I mean, I, I can't remember where I was. It was at CNN. I don't remember, but it was an interview with some, um, financial guy and they were saying that where people want to put their money are intangible assets thus being um fine arts collectibles paintings and they actually said motion picture memorabilia hmm. interesting because it's a tangible asset and it's an investment yeah and it's just like let's say a marilyn monroe dress or, you know, what's another one? Uh, Indiana Jones's whip or right. the Maltese Falcon, you know, Bogey's Maltese Falcon from, it's any of those really iconic, iconic pieces of memorabilia yeah. that 
are going to maintain their value as long as, you know, somebody doesn't start making replicas and <laughs> all that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, I really do. I, I feel that it's moving towards a collectible art form. Um, and I think it's going to grow. I really do. I think it's going to spread. Yeah, and I, I think... Mean, I think there's definitely room for growth because what's interesting to me is, you know, people love movies. People all over the world love, you know, even American movies. And you look at something that's more mainstream, like poster collecting, and you look at the crazy prices that things sell for. And you can have a poster from a movie and you can have like a hero prop from a movie and the poster will sell for a lot more. And that's a mass produced marketing piece. I mean, it might be old and rare, but at the same time, to me, there's no comparison between that and something that's actually on the set of the movie used by the actors. So that's why I think there's still room for, I mean, as, as much as things are, you know, can go for crazy prices today, still relative to some other kinds of collectibles, even like, you know, this isn't something I particularly follow, but watching auction houses, I'll see, um, you know, old books, novels sell for crazy money, even in the profiles auctions, you know, those James Bond books, you know, what? signed by Ian Fleming okay. and things like that. Still, those things go for a lot more money than a comparable, you know, movie or TV prop or costume. Crazy money. Yeah. Um, even comic books, but that's an art. You know, again, it's a, it's, a, it's all relevant to its art form. It's just like you said, movie memorabilia. I mean, or uh, versus posters. Right. It it still has that crossover between the people that collect paintings or drawings or you know. That um, it crosses over. It's the same thing like photographs. I I participated in the Harrell and um, the uh, what was it Clarence Sinclair Bowl mm-hmm. auction at Profiles. I mean, you these photos were just insane. These mm-hmm. glamour photos, the detail, the variance, the the colors. I mean, I even bought some some negatives. I mean, and I don't collect. I don't collect anything, and I don't think I'm going to sell these. They're so beautiful. So, but then again, I have been born and raised around these clothes and these props and these big warehouses and these huge armory houses, and you know, it's it's cool to me. But so there you go. There's someone who's in the middle of it <laughs> that actually thinks the complete opposite. Well, see, that's what has always kind of fascinated me too, is that. It seems like in Hollywood, and since you've grown up in that world, maybe you can have some insight on this. It seems like for the studios and more or less the people that participate in the actual making of the movies that the props and costumes really don't seem to excite them that much. It's really more about the star and about the personalities and, um, you know, it's more about the people acting in the movies, whereas um movie prop collectors yeah movie (laughs) prop collectors you know we we see a movie and and we see some you know sword or whatever used in a movie and we think wow that's like this iconic thing but it seems like it doesn't really move the people that are making them and maybe that's why there's not you know some hollywood museum that has props and costumes that's you know a big attraction because it just seems like it it isn't that interesting to the people that are making the movies in the studios? I mean, do you think that that's true in your experience or? No, I, I, this is, this is exactly, let me tell you about a a studio mentality, a producer's mentality, um, even a director. Um, 
they that's not their end use. Those props, costumes, set dressing, um, storyboards, anything, th- these are all the assets that you need to actually make a product. Mm-hmm. Um, and yes, I mean, people like, I mean, look at, look at Avatar, look at, um, Coraline, look at Tim Burton's films, look at, I mean, any, the, the artistry that went into making those puppets. And there's a, there's a collector out there, and if he's listening, he'll know who he is, that turned me <laughs> on, I mean, to stop motion animation. I'd never really looked too closely at it, and I had an opportunity to go over to Warner Brothers Archives and, and, uh, and look at these puppets. And each one of those little miniature, tiny, hinged, movable puppets, Mm-hmm. Had the, had wardrobe on. It's not. It's not digitally enhanced. Each one of those little <laughs> tiny, the pants and the shoes and the. Now, see, that's an art form, and, and the and people like Tim Burton. Yeah. They still hold a respect and know that it's a necessary thing to put into their films to get their end product. And yeah, it's. It, I think that because it it was you know the painstaking hours that it takes to make it and the creativity and everything else, I think that they hold on to those things. The studios or, or Tim Burton does, or even like Peter Jackson's got his own, uh, you know. Mm-hmm. George Lucas has his whole warehouse full of all his Star Wars stuff and the things that he does. Um, but again, those are those types of films where you have to have that creativity in the wardrobe, in the props. But a lot of these movies. It, the studios, it's a byproduct. Like once it's done, where are we going to put it, get rid of it? I don't want to store it. They're looking, you know, then you have the accountants looking saying, listen, we're paying $35,000 a month in storage for this crap. Right. What are we going to do with it? And you know what? They end up calling me or another wardrobe house. Come get this stuff. Um, but the tables have changed though. I have to say is where they used to just shove it all at the costume houses and the prop houses and the armors. Come get this stuff, buy it pennies on the dollar. Just, I don't want to pay this overhead. This production's done because they're on to the next thing. This is just something that they don't even want to think about. Um, but they are keeping now the principal wardrobe and a lot of the key props mm-hmm. where they used to not do that. So I think that they have aware, they have a level of awareness that these items are, are valuable at some level. Um, whether or not they actually do anything with it down the road is, you know, they probably end up dumping it or just taking all the labels out of it and integrating it into stock. And then the stock at the studios, they get too full, and so then they purge. It's just this constant rotation. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's their mentality. But then, you know, there's like HBO who hired me to do, you know, a Sopranos auction. We ended up only doing it with uh, the men's wardrobe, but we were supposed to go. And I they had hired me to go out to New York, and I... Um, I did a asset list for them of everything they should keep from every single set uh, for archives and for for an auction. And we were going to um, and uh, James Gandolfini was championing championing the auction. Did mm-hmm. I say that word right? Yes. <laughs> I can't ever pronounce that word. That's embarrassing. <laughs> um, and at the end, the lawyers kind of pulled back, but Jim wanted to go through with it and hand the rights to all of his wardrobe, and we had purchased a whole entire wardrobe department. So we were able to raise $250,000 for uh, the Wounded Warriors organization, which was awesome. Yeah, that's incredible. 
But it would have been better because it probably would have been like 2.5 million. I mean, with all the hype and the end of the show and it being in New York and Christie's was so great. Um, um, and, and you know, then it, it was really disheartening to me, but also I was actually, I was, I felt kind of split between super bummed and then really excited <laughs> that my idea worked because I wa- I watched it happen with the Battlestar Galactica auction and that was my, that was, my exact um, business model. Right. So to see that work and to see a studio get it and stand behind it. Right. And then market it at the tail end of the show and online and viral. And I mean, it was a success. Mm-hmm. So can they do that with every movie or every television series that comes about? No, it needs to be something that has a lot of really cool props like Battlestar Galactica um, you know, and obviously you had the 1970s series as well. Um, Sopranos, mob-related, um, just super edgy, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, I think that's the thing is it takes a certain property where also people who aren't prop and wardrobe collectors would be inspired to participate in the auctions just because they love the show so much, which I think, you know, that'll probably happen with the Lost auction. Um Unfortunately, and the show ends Sunday, and you know, obviously the auction's not happening quite yet. But uh, you know, I think um, it'll be interesting to see when this happens again. You know, what what's going to be the next big show where you can sort of seize that opportunity and the timing. And um, you know, again, I think it's it's something that really spreads awareness of the hobby, which you know is always a good thing. So, oh, absolutely, absolutely. Well, I'd be interesting to see how how Lost is is going to do. I know that um, Profiles has been all over the place promoting it, Budapest, yeah, and Europe, and Hawaii, and uh, all over. I'm not quite sure all their stops, but I think it's interesting. I mean, it's just like and Darren Julian. I mean, he has come leaps and bounds. Um, it's I think it's really cool what he's doing. I think it's going to be be interesting to see how it affects collecting on a global level outside of the UK, which, you know, prop store has been, um, you know, the driving force behind, behind that whole collecting community, but he's going to Asia and with his, um, exhibitions and promoting his auctions and Russia and then back to Europe. I mean, he's been all over the place and he, um, he does really well in the PR department, um, using the Today Show and his connections in New York. And um, I yeah. think he's, he's got a really great business model. Yeah, and, and, I, yeah, and I think his, his work, it always, to me, comes across as just very high-end, like just really well-polished and um, kind of upper-scale. You know, his auctions and his catalogs, everything always looks really top-notch, you know, not just thrown together. Or, um, you know, it seems really well-planned and well-thought-out, so... No, absolutely. I agree a hundred percent. Um, even his, his ex, I mean, I, I used to put his, his exhibitions together for him. I mean, days ago and, uh, now he's got a, a whole team of people in it. Everything from lighting to, you know, the mannequins and the displays and everything that they put up. It's just, it's, it's going to be, um, interesting to see where he takes it, especially with this whole new Asian market that, that he has. And I think that that is, probably attributed to the whole Michael Jackson auction that was 
um, successful but yet unsuccessful right <laughs> for him in the same in the same note you know yeah so i'm I'm excited to see where where that where that takes us if it's going to bring interest from from those countries as well yeah and now I know you cross over also into music memorabilia as does Julian's um, how how do you think I mean do you think that has a a much wider audience than um, movie and prop costume collecting I well if you asked me that five years ago I would say yes but not now I think that the prop collecting has is is getting up there mm-hmm. um, but the difference with movie and and television memorabilia is that there's multiples of things mm-hmm. um, and it's a short-lived thing right Um whether it be a series that runs for 10 years or one major epic blockbuster like, let's say, Gladiator, present day. I mean, well, 15 years, 12 years ago, 10, how long? Anyways. Um, early 90s, so yeah, it's been a long oh, time ago. I'm feeling old now. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Um, but you're talking about music icons. Mm-hmm. There's only one of them. Right. And these icon I mean yes you have your you know your fashion fa- in, who's in fashion who's out of fashion who's hot who's not right that roll in and out but you have you know you, like present day Britney Spears versus you know Madonna you want to take it back you have Jimmy Hen- Jimmy Hendrix and mm-hmm. Jim Morrison I mean and Morrison died with virtually nothing and I have the most amazing story on him um I met with one of his his old friends that was a was his opium dealer back in the day, and he had a coat that he gave him. And I went to Seattle. We interviewed him, and the <laughs> stories that this guy had were just unbelievable. He was actually dating Pamela Pam um, Pamela Curson like months before she died. Huh. And uh, anyways, it was just it was really cool. But that being said, Pamela Curson is the only one that had anything left of Jim's. Like, as far as clothing earlier, it was all in her place. And when she died, the family's, you know, Jim's family and her family fought over it. But, the, I mean, he was he was a hippie. He was overweight. So, I mean, there really wasn't much left. And you think about all the wardrobe he wore before that. It was like a pair of leather pants and some frock coats. And, right. I mean, he really didn't have much. So, the value on those types of items and famous handwritten lyrics. I mean, those are going to hold their value, and they've been turned over ten times and still going up. Right. Um, so that's the difference, I feel, with music memorabilia. And I find that um, the old-time music collectors are looking into some of the new the new artists, like Christina Aguilera and Pink and, you know, 50 Cent and who else? Britney Spears. People that are gonna have already sustained their fame um, and are continuing to create music and stay in the limelight. People are really paying a lot of money for that stuff now. Where it was, you know, two, three thousand dollars. Well, they're paying ten, fifteen thousand dollars for a pink video worn outfit. Right. Know? So. Yeah, because for me, I've always wanted to. I've, I'm I'm a big music lover as much as. Um, 
film and television. I have not until recently recently collected any music memorabilia because for me it's sort of like a whole nother world, you know, and knowing the fraud that goes on in movie props and everything, for me is sort of just this foreign thing where I wasn't really sure. But um Coldplay recently did their auction. They did a charity auction at the end of last year, so I won one of the guitars in that. So that was pretty exciting. So at least for me I had the comfort level, you know, it's coming directly from the band and the exciting thing for me kind of comparing it to movie props is you know movie prop or costume you see it in the movie but what's interesting about music memorabilia is if you see them playing something live on stage and in videos and stuff i mean to me that's extremely um appealing as you know a collector to have something that you can actually see a musician using because i don't know i kind of i elevate musicians up you know pretty pretty high um because it's whereas films are more collaborative you know there's so many people involved you know musicians that really so much of it just stands on their own work of you know either um a solo performer or a band or whatever but um you know knowing your background and seeing that you've dealt in some of this kind of memorabilia i was just really interested to see you know hear your thoughts on that so um it it all comes down to rarity yeah have you ever dealt with the hard rock cafe I have. Okay. I have um, for years, but uh, Warwick Stone, he is the man in charge in, in Vegas, and he's been around forever. You should Google him. He's got a, a, a really amazing history with the hard rock um, and uh, music memorabilia. He definitely knows his stuff, um, and he's he's the creative man behind all the displays, like the hard rock sign he designed. Oh, really? The half sod um, and half Cadillac that hangs above the bars. <laughs> yeah, that was him. Like, um, and they've gone through their they're owned by a new company now, but they rehired him to come back and and do the designs. And um, he's a very educated man in music memorabilia, that's for sure. Yeah. Well, I got there. Um they have like kind of a coffee table book. I got that, I think late last year. And that's an awesome, awesome book. And it's sort of interesting reading it because they talk about how they have this huge collection, but no one could ever possibly see all of it because it's spread out all over the world. So it's sort of an interesting concept. Oh, it is because, well, the restaurants were separated from the casino. Mm -hmm. They're owned by two different conglomerates. So I think they had to split up some of the assets as well. Um, but yeah, it's, I mean, how many hard, I don't even know how many hard rocks there are now. A lot. Yeah, there's a lot. There's even one in my town. I didn't even know it until a couple months ago. <laughs> I was like, oh wow. So I had to eat there, but, uh, it's, it's interesting. So now you've worked with Planet Hollywood, Hard Rock Cafe, and pretty much all the auction houses then, right? Or yes. The top auction houses. Yeah. And most of the dealers, I mean, back when I started 16 years ago, crazy. <laughs> 16 years of playing with wardrobe and props. Um, you know, it was the only other dealer, and they'd been at it much longer than I have, uh, had been when I started, was uh, Marsha Teisling at Starwares and um, Michael Chronic of Startifacts. Mm-hmm. Michael Chronic was the first real music memorabilia dealer out there, and he started when he was 16. Hmm. So he'd been doing it a long time. He'd done, he was responsible for the Kiss auctions and worked with Gene Simmons for years and, you know, and then uh, dealing with all the the framers out in Vegas, you know, there's, I still deal with all those different um, 
stores out there and I guess I have a lot of really great friends from from this business that I've met along the way that are still doing it which is which is kind of cool yeah so what what are some of the biggest changes that you've seen since kind of the advent of the internet and how that's affected um you know the business side of selling and and dealing and um movie props and movie uh, costumes? Well, there's a number of, gosh, there's been a lot of changes. I think because I I was one of the first people to do it, along with um, Star Wars, you know, Marsha and, and Michael, um, you could sell anything. If it was on a background character in anything, you could sell it. And then mm-hmm. when eBay came out, it was just like the doors opened. But unfortunately, with eBay and um, the age of the Internet, a lot of fraudulent stuff started coming out. There were people that were selling, going around and buying up, let's say uh, this one particular person was buying, uh, would see a Britney Spears Pepsi, I think it was a Pepsi commercial. He was doing this for like hundreds of items, though. Mm-hmm. And he'd go buy a pair of jeans, and he would age them down and stick some patches on them and say that it was, Britney Spears worn in the Pepsi commercial, and then it came with a Western costume COA with my name signed as the vice president. Wow. With a picture of the building on it. <laughs> yeah. So those are the types of things that I think have hurt the business. Um, and, you know, we maintained how many costumes, you know, kind of were out there. It wasn't flooded. You know, I'd hold on. I still have costumes that are doubles of, of certain costumes that, you know, I just kind of control the market and um, you just don't put it all out there. And there's these other companies that have come along and they just go and list 25 costumes. It's like there's no reason for that many things to be out there. You know, right. I think that that really hurt the business as well. Like I said, rarity is a is um, the driving force behind a lot of these collectibles. I have thrown things away to keep certain things rare, <laughs> you know? Um, and I think that eBay and, and um, some of the other companies that just want to push it on out there, they've heard it a little bit. Yeah, and I think with eBay, there's kind of two movements. There's a lot of just fake stuff. And then on the other side, the real things that are sold, like say from Premier Props um, and then Previously, Hollywood Vault, which I'm not sure if they're even around anymore. I've been told they're not, but that's not confirmed. Um, they they kind of just put like the whole movie on eBay, you know, starting at 99 cents. Um, and I just don't. I'm not. I just don't think that that's the right way to go about it. Yeah. And I don't think that you need to sell pencils off a desk. But see, the thing is, is companies like that are are contracted to sell everything. Right. So they got to move it out. Yeah. Well, there's but kind also, of, oh, go ahead. That's okay. Sometimes also within the mix-up of that is it's the quality control as well. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't know what's a stunt and what's something else. Right. You know, not intentionally. They're not promoting it, but it happens. Whereas, you know, companies like the Golden Closet, my company, and um, Prop Store and screen use that you know they start out as collectors i just i'm just anal you know i go through <laughs> everything and make sure it's just a hundred percent it's just i feel like if i was out there on the other end and i have been 
and I've been totally screwed and it just mm-hmm. sucks and it infuriates me. Um, but if, if I was spending from a, if it's a hundred dollars to ten thousand dollars, that thing better be a hundred percent not only authentic, but it better come with a some kind of chain of provenance from who used it, what you know, mm-hmm. the the actor, the the studio, the producer, the costume house, the customer, someone. Right. Um and then I triple check it. I mean I have stuff that's brought in there all the time. I'll be like, Okay guys, this is so not right. <laughs> I know you were on the movie, but this is not right. Look, see here, here and here. Um and I know that when you're dealing with masses and quantities, that quality controls really hard. I mean, you'd have to have a hundred people on staff. Right. So that, that's the only aspect of, of, but that's just the way I do business. Right. My deal, you know. Um, and I get it. I can't even imagine pushing that much stuff out. And that's why I've wholesaled. I mean, I'll sell some movies, but I'll only sell the really high end key stuff and then, I'll either put it into stock or I'll sell, I'll sell the whole movie to somebody else because I don't want to deal with the mass quantities. I'd rather deal with really high-end, more iconic, and take more time documenting it. Right. Because that's what I enjoy doing. Yeah. So now, did you say you don't collect stuff personally for I the don't. most part? <laughs> it's a it's a known fact. I know everybody out there. <laughs> don't be angry. <laughs> It's a good thing, though. Everything's for sale. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess, I mean, if you're around it all the time, then it's sort of, uh, I mean, it's it must be fun for you to be around it. And I mean, really, I mean, we don't really ever, quote, you know, really own it because it's going to outlast us anyway. So we're just sort of taking care of it for a while, I guess. And it's preserving it. That's what yeah. I, that's the way I think of what we do is we document and preserve history. Mm-hmm. And then we put it into good homes because nobody, no one person, no one studio, no one museum could ever hold everything. Mm-hmm. Even if you were just to pick one iconic thing from every major film or every major star, there's no, there's nowhere that could house it. Right. Um, so, but I definitely have certain things that I've been absolutely in love with and it usually has to do with costume construction. Oh, really? Yeah, versus the star, or the celebrity, or the movie. There was an Anita Ekberg dress that was designed by Edith Head, and I have no idea how it was made. It was just <laughs> unknown to me. It was so beautiful. Um, and actually, uh, Sierra, who's my right, my right-hand lady here in the office, she pretty much runs the Golden Closet. Um, I think she cried the day we sent it out because <laughs> she's a costumer too. Yeah. Um, she's actually a motion picture costumer and a, and a draper and a seamstress. So, so things like that, but it's really not because of, um, the celebrity aspect of it. It's really for the craft. Yeah. From my point of view. So the new profiles in history catalog for their auction in June. <laughs> The cover has the Marilyn Monroe dress, and uh, do you have any idea who modeled that? (laughs) (laughs) That would be me. (laughs) Okay, I did kind of, I geeked out. I did. (laughs) Joe called me and said, hey, do you want to, you know, we need someone small enough to fit 
So, so was, was Brian sick that day? or <laughs> I know. Oh, I love heckling Brian over his costume. But the, the best thing, it's like the hair pieces they put on him and those straight faces that he has. It's hilarious. Oh, he cracks me up. Um, no, he called me and he said, you know, we need someone small enough to fit in a dress. Actually, I think it was Lori. But uh, anyways, I said, well, if I'm going to... I, I, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do it right. I went and had my hair done and the makeup and the whole thing. And I have to tell you, it was pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> it was pretty amazing. Um, you would never believe how small she is. I yeah. mean, I'm, I'm 5'3", 120 pounds. That's pretty small. <laughs> yeah. So she, I mean, that thing fit me like a glove. Wow. Um. But it was, yeah, it was, it was really fun and it was, it was pretty cool to yeah. be like, yeah, okay, I'm wearing Marilyn's Diamonds Are Girl's Best Friend dress. This is <laughs> yeah. I actually modeled the Madonna version of that too later on when I sold that dress. Oh, so really? Yeah. That was prior to the, the profiles catalog cover. <laughs> Good times. Oh, <laughs> cracks me up a little bit. Yeah. So how are you connected with um, wardrobe on the music side? Is it pretty much the same people that do movie costumes and, you know, rock star costumes and things like that? Or You know what? It used to be, but it's actually, it's split. That part of the costuming industry, it's more of style. They're, they're called stylists rather than customers. Hmm. Um. And I think once the stylist gets settled down with a fairly big entertainer, mm-hmm. uh, they hire them on full time. So they, they go with them to their appearances. They do their music videos. They do their, um, stage shows or, or they assist with a, a bigger designer to design the look and the feel and, um, so on and so forth. So I really feel that the, uh, music, part of the entertainment industry they have their own set of stylists and most of the time though they started out as a customer Mm -hmm. um and then moved into that that genre um but they come here for for those unique vintage pieces and that's how we end up with it or you know the masses or they need something custom made um and then that's how we build relationships with these entertainers as well Hmm. Most of everything we do for them is, is for a charity element, which is really cool. Like for charity auction kind of things? or Charity auction, or they want to maintain it. It's just, um, it's like when I met um, James Gandolfini, he had given away one of his bloody shirts from when he was shot. I mean, I don't know if you're familiar with the shirt. Oh, yeah. He gets, you know, he gets shot by Uncle Junior, that bloody yeah. shirt. There were only two of those. They only took two takes. <laughs> um, and he gave one of them to his kid's school to auction off for charity. And I think they sold it for like a thousand bucks. And then the person who bought it put it in profiles and it sold for 5,000. Hmm. So these people come to me and I maintain the value of their items and make sure they get the maximum return. And therefore they can then disperse of it to whatever charity they want to donate to rather than just throwing them stuff. Right. You know, that's going to sell for. You know, how, what, put a, put a celebrity outfit into a celebrity auction where it's a celebrity dinner. Like what celebrity wants to buy other celebrity clothing, <laughs> <Right>. you know? 
It's kind of ridiculous. <laughs> so, um, but that's kind of cool. We started something. We're re- revamping our website right now, and we started um, a program called Collectors for Charity. Um, and it's a place where everything that we have that is going to be donated or the percent of it's going to be donated will be listed on that page as well as in the other categories. And um, also collectors can participate. If they want to consign something to our collectors for charity and donate whatever percentage of that the sale of that item, um, and then we'll notate what charity it is it's going to um, we're offering a platform and an avenue for collectors to do to do that. Oh, cool. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. We had it really successful. A prop store of London and and uh, the Golden Closet teamed up, and we had a small auction for Haiti, and we raised about $6,000. It wasn't, like, huge, but it was still $6,000. Yeah. yeah, that's great. really cool. So... You mentioned the Sopranos. I know you had some uh, some of the weapons also from the show. Do you find that there's not as much of an appetite for real, you know, real guns that were used as props in movies, or is it more that it's sort of limited because people, you know, outside the U.S., it's more challenging for them to get a hold, you know, to own real firearms or. Yeah, you know what? I would say yes, and I would say no at the same time. Yeah. Some movies, you buy these these live-firing weapons, and they fly out the door. Mm-hmm. And some you think they're going to, and they just don't. Big heavy hitters, huge actors, and they just don't move. Um, but there's definitely a market out there, and some people would much rather prefer the live firing weapon over the rubber yeah prop stunt gun um and yes it is it's really hard to get them into Europe you just have to know the right way to do it the deactivization deactivization active active <laughs> I can't say it <laughs> been talking too long Jason I'm deactivation yeah <laughs> um but whereas here in the United States, you have to actually cut the, our federal government says you have to cut the gun into three parts, like with destroying the gun. Mm-hmm. It's not like take the barrel off or fill it with, you know, lead or cement or whatever. Right. I'm not even sure how they do that over there, but, um, and it's two easy steps. I think you just take out the firing pin and then they fill the barrel and you're done. Right. That's deactivated. Um, so in one sense, it's, harder i guess to find somebody to be able to do this overseas like in europe i guess what we're talking about mm-hmm. um and here there's absolutely no way around it you have to have an ffl license right um and the state of new york you can't own a handgun so nobody in new york can buy a prop gun hmm. yeah it's crazy but um <laughs> I don't know. It weirds me out. I don't even have any of my own guns here. They're all with a, a friend that's an armor, and he has them all yeah. locked up in his gun safe. <laughs> uh, Very cool. So is there anything else you want to uh, share with the listeners about what you guys have coming up or going on? Or um, Well, we're, re- we're revamping our website right now, and it's going to be really, really cool. Um, a little a bit more arty um, 
and uh, yeah, we've actually got some really cool stuff coming in, but I can't talk about it yet. <laughs> it's top secret. Uh, it's top secret. But well, we are looking forward to your visit here next week. Yeah. So next week I'm going to be visiting uh, the Golden Closet, your warehouse, and I'll be shooting some video so people can get an idea of um, what kinds of things you guys have there, what it looks like, and uh, that should be a lot of fun. We're actually located in Eastern Costume, so you'll be able to see oh, the whole costume warehouse. Very cool. So yeah. I'm definitely looking forward to that. Awesome, awesome. Well, uh, we are too. So we just want to thank you so much for this opportunity to get to chat on the phone after all these years. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, thanks for taking the time. And um, you have such an interesting background and so much experience. I'd like to um, at some point bring you back again. We can just chat about, you know, some other stuff related to the hobby. And I think people will enjoy it. So thanks again. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> I hope it wasn't too much information. You get me talking and sometimes <laughs> I don't shut up. <laughs> no, information is good. So. Alrighty. Well, cool, Jason. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you. And we'll see you next week. All right. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to our program, Prop Talk. For the latest news about the world of original television and movie memorabilia, please visit us online at www.originalpropblog.com.